Our text of study today will be from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and and the Jews about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about um, and who is across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him by heaven, from heaven. You, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens to him, for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. I must increase. I'm sorry, he must increase, but I must decrease. Church, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you don't have your copy of God's Word open yet, please go ahead and do that. We're going to be there in John chapter 3 together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have a few copies there right in the back table straight behind us here, and uh, we'd be happy for you to feel free to get up and get one if you need one. So at some point or another in our lives, and uh, most of us who are, or those of us who are maybe on the back half of our life have realized this, we, we are faced with the truth of our mortality. We're faced with the truth of our, I'm going to use the word elasticity, right? Our ability to change and adapt, right? As I get older, I am more crotchety. I'm a little bit less flexible about the way things are. I don't like change. I'd rather not deal with traffic in Murfreesboro like I did yesterday. If you were out and about yesterday, it took me 45 minutes to get from one end of Murfreesboro to the other end of Murfreesboro, and that's inexplicable to me. Um, It probably is to you as well, and so maybe... Maybe we're living in the wrong area. I don't know. Well, we'll see. We'll find out. Um, makes me want to live about an hour off the grid. Who knows? Maybe we can just pick the whole church up and we can just move a little further out, you know? But the truth is, change is inevitable, is it not? It's just inevitable. It's something that we can't change. There's, there's like, what is it that people say? There's, there's, there's two truths in life. There's death and taxes. So it's probably a third one, right? Change is inevitable. We can't, we can't change it. We can't stop it. It's going to happen. And sometimes those changes are not always welcomed changes, but we must learn to live faithfully and patiently in those changes as God's people. Um, but though these changes are natural, they're just things that we just know we have to deal with. And as you get older and as we get, move on down the course of life, we, we, they're not always welcomed. We see all the decades of our work and effort, and I'm thinking about myself as a dad, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, as a neighbor... And we pour all of our energies into these respective areas of our life. And sometime, at some point, we realize that those efforts tend to kind of diminish, do they not? They, they kind of tend to slow down. Maybe they are not as effective as they once were. And these are just realities that we all face. We all face these things, and whether or not we want to face them or not. And there's a few ways that we tend to respond to these kinds of things. Like, so I gave you a couple examples earlier, but here's a couple of more. We can respond to these changes in life with kind of this critical doomsday kind of spirit that refuses to see the big picture of God's sovereign uh, uh, orchestrated plans in our lives. We can, we can tend to have that perspective, kind of a doomsday spirit. We can, have a, we can tend to respond to it with kind of a blind refusal, a blind refusal to, uh, to, to, to see how things actually are today. And we're always looking back at the good old days. 
as if there ever really were good old days since the garden. Um, there, there hasn't been. Um, or we can respond sometimes with an attitude that the center of the universe is me and my family and my church and my community and how dare life goes on without me and how can this whole enterprise go on without me if, if for some reason I'm not around and I'm not leading the efforts, right? So we got all these different ways in which we respond to these truths, but we, but we forget that sometimes that the way that we as Christians should respond to these things is with a, with a more gospel-saturated, more grace-filled kind of perspective. That we can sit back in the middle of all of this, right? We can actually do that, and we can delight not only in the fruits of our own labor, but more importantly, we can delight in God's grace and goodness in our lives as He has sovereignly assigns us the purposes of our lives. Amen. See, it's easy, very easy to get in the midst of our context and we start questioning everything. But when we start to look back and put our lives centered back on God's sovereign like work in our lives, we begin to stop and take pause and we begin to have the ability to have delight in these circumstances that may not always be easy. In fact, we can guarantee that they won't be. So that's kind of the summary that we're going to kind of head after. That's going to be the, the trajectory we're going to head towards is that everything that we have in this life is given by God for the glory of Jesus and he has the right to do with our lives what he wills. Amen. A truth that I think very few of us would disagree with, but I would bet all of us wrestle with. Right? Like, just say it again. Everything in our life we have in our life is given to us by God for the glory of Jesus, and he has the right. That second part's the hardest, right? He has the right to do with our lives what he wishes, what he wills. Let's talk about that this morning. Because that's what we see here in John. All the events that are starting to happen as Jesus' ministry is beginning to take shape. And we see right here in verses 22 through 24, the reality of John's ministries kind of maybe fading a little bit. Um, Jesus' ministry is taking off. The wheels are kind of rolling pretty well. The rubber is starting to meet the road in Jesus' life. And, and, and even, even so much so that some of the disciples have already have begun to, uh, John's disciples have already begun to come and follow after Jesus. We saw this in Andrew a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks ago. Yet, John the Baptist's ministry is still carrying on, too. We see that right there in verse uh, 23. It says, John also was baptizing because there were plenty of water there. There's plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized. So what we see is this picture that, like, the ministry is still going on. John's ministry is still carrying on. Jesus' ministry is gaining traction. But there's still a problem because now John's ministry is sharing the stage with Jesus' ministry. And for some, at least, in John's contingent, they don't like it. They don't like what they're seeing. But whatever we are to make of this before we start to look at the disciples for a moment, and maybe even to look at ourselves through the disciples for his disciples for a moment, whatever we're to make of this, we must understand that, that, that many were coming to faith. Many were, return, were, were turning their lives to Jesus and being driven to Jesus. To see him, as we've already noted through our study in John, to see him as the true tabernacle, our true form of rest. To see Jesus as our true temple, Jesus as our true Messiah to come. But in spite of that being, and John being very clear about that call of his ministry, his disciples somewhere along the line have missed the point. So let's pick up there in verse 25 and 26. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a, Jews, and, and a Jew about purification. Now, this is not really the main point of the passage, but it just kind of sets the stage for all the questions that John's disciples want to begin to ask. 
But apparently there were some people challenging John's, the validity of John's ministry, even probably the validity of Jesus' ministry, if all truth be told. But it set the stage for verse 26. So they came to John and told the rabbi, told him, Rabbi, the one who you testified about, the one who was with you across the Jordan, is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, there's a lot of loaded stuff into this, this response to John. And I think if we take a good look at it, we see some of ourselves in it. But let's just look at them just for a moment. Their followers of John had some misgivings about what was developing. I mean, we've been faithful. Our ministry is our ministry, and all of a sudden now we've got to share that ministry. Or all of a sudden we've got to then defer our ministry down to this God, Jesus, that you've been telling us all about all along. And so as this, as all of it, they're starting to see all these things kind of develop, it sparked in them these concerns about the plateauing nature of John the Baptist's ministry. Again, it tells us right there that John has not been thrown in prison. It means, in other words, he hasn't went to prison, he hasn't died yet, so this ministry is still going on. But nonetheless, these disciples are getting embittered. These disciples of John were getting jealous. Or becoming jealous, they were becoming self-protective of their little ministry world. We can often do the same thing, can't we? Sometimes ministries and churches, take them up here. We can become so personality-driven that when some other thing comes on the scene that we get a little bit um, unnerved by that. One of the things I really appreciated and still appreciate by some of the members of the First Free Methodist Church was most of them, as they saw the, as God was moving in our church and beginning to, uh, beginning to show signs that it was time for their church to, to, to close, many of them were like they started realizing, like they, they realized that God was challenging them to say, God's doing something else, and, and they were willing to, to, to trust God in that. But that's not always the case for us, is it? But let's, talk, let's, let's, let's get out of the ministry world for a second. Let's look a little closer to home. Because this isn't just like for pastors. This is not just for like John the Baptist kind of guys. This is, this is some truth in this for all of us in these disciples. This can happen in our homes, in our dreams, in our ambitions. When we plan out a life that we thought would be different than the one that we actually have. That, that really these disciples are, have envisioned something in John's ministry that is not coming to fruition. And they're really concerned about this and they're becoming quite frustrated and, you know, all, all, offbeat for some reason, for whatever reason. You see, it's not always easy to look at the change that we know God is doing in our life and, and go, oh yeah, I believe in God's sovereign will. We can all say that, but then when we start to see the effects of that on our lives and we start to see the consequences and we start to see the sacrifices and we, we get to see the, the unfulfilled dreams of our life that we all want, we can begin to second guess, right? It's not always an easy pill to swallow, is it? It's just not. And, and there are lots of, there's a lots of narratives that each of us bring into this room that we are writing, and we're realizing that we're continuing to rewrite a narrative no matter what, and we're chasing this thing, and it's not really coming out the way that we are, it's written in our, in our, in our own minds, in our own hearts. And so that's why we want to take a moment, take the rest of our time, and just really focus on what does John do? How does he respond? Do you think John's not thought about this? I mean, John sees the writing on the wall. He knows the purpose of his ministry. He knows, as he says at the very end, he must increase and I must decrease. But don't you think that he probably wrestled internally, at least humanly speaking, with these kinds of things? How did he deal with the reality of a, an increasing ministry of Jesus and a diminishing ministry of his own ministry and influence? Well, I think we can see some wonderful things here in, these, in verses 20 through, 27 through 30 that will help us today. And so I want to see two things. 
First is, in verse 27, we're going to see the, the key gospel principle that John is operating from. And then in verses 28 through 30, we're going to look at the fruits of that principle on his life. And hopefully, conversely, um, in our lives. So let's just talk a, bit, a moment here. Verse 27, the key gospel principle that John is operating from. Pick up in verse 27. It's very clear. No one can receive anything. Right? So my ministry is nothing unless it has been given to me, by, given to him from heaven. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him by or from heaven. What's the principle? The principle more plainly stated is God's assignments to his people are sovereignly distributed. God's assignments to his people are sovereignly distributed. There's no great council that you get to go knock on the door. You don't get to go to a city council and you get to interrupt the plans of the city or get to talk about your, your vision for the city and whatever else. That doesn't work in God's economy. God's sovereign and he distributes his plans to us as he wills, when he wills. And the scope of the statement makes it very plain, right? We see the, we see the absolute all-inclusive nature of the statement, right? All things. No one can receive anything, Right? So just, let's just kind of put this into the context of our own lives for a second. All our vocations are given to us. Careers, whatnot. All of our intelligence is given to us. All of our families and spouses are sovereignly appointed to us. All of our social spheres in life are appointed for us. All our ministry and mission assignments are given to us, and that includes your membership right here at Grace Church. These are all things that God appoints for us. Does it mean that we're not free within them? Of course not. We are free within those things. But we're free because God has appointed these structures for us so that we can live freely. But we don't do that, do we? We don't remind ourselves this key principle that John is operating from. He, he begins to respond to these disciples with this one, then one idea that drives everything about his ministry, his goals, and his passion, his purpose, at least until he's beheaded here in just a little while ahead. All things are sovereignly distributed to us by God. Amen. How might that change everything for us today? How might that reorient the way that you are looking at your life circumstances, whether you are tend to be an optimistic person or not optim or not or, or, or more depressed kind of individual when you come look at your circumstances, not as optimistic. Right? How might this change your life if you and I were to begin today to operate from that principle that John is operating from? Because we get, if we don't, we need to make sure we're very clear about the effects of this when we don't operate from this principle. We've already seen it, but let's just talk about it a little bit more plainly. Jealousy. John the Baptist, his disciples were jealous. They were jealous that someone else is getting the glory for all their hard work, all of John's hard work. And that can happen to us, can it not? Defensiveness, right? right? How... How, are, how am I being seen as faithful or how my little niche in the world is faithful, how I raise my family is faithful, and how dare someone else be more fruitful than me? 
Do you not see the hard work that I'm doing in my family, the hard work I'm doing in my marriage, the hard work that I'm doing in my church? Again, fill in the blank however you wish, but we tend to get faith, defenseless, right? Defense, uh, defensive when it comes to these things. If we do not operate according to the principle that John has just stated, we become tribal, right? We become tribal. We begin to circle the wagons around our little niche things. And we see these in all over the places. You can look into family life. You can see the way that families get around their niches about how they educate their children. We get around our our niches around what kind of jobs we should have or what kind of education we should get or how much education we should get or what sports we should play or what team you should pull for or what politics you are or whatever you may be. All these little spheres, these tribalisms begin begin to circle wagons around these things. And we go, wait a minute. Okay, Jesus is doing a good thing, but dude, there's gotta be some value here. There's gotta be some value in and of itself. And John says, there is no value in what I'm doing unless God appoints it. Then then the natural result then was that we kind of descend into this kind of self-concerned brooding, right? I can start being a whiny, whimpering little baby sometimes when I don't get my way. I bet you can too. Look how I'm being mistreated. Look how I'm being overlooked because of all my hard work. And that's just kind of, and again, we, we're reading in a little bit here, but I think that's probably kind of behind all of the stuff the disciples are concerned about. And John just says, look, that's going to be natural to you if you don't operate according to the main principle. God has sovereignly distributed your assignment. That includes, Dad, your jobs. That doesn't mean you can't look for other jobs. You should look for other jobs if you feel free to. That also means your neighborhoods, your bank accounts, your family, your wife, your kids, whatever they, that, what these things are. So we've lived in a world. We live in a world right now that has taught us that the most supreme principle you and I are to operate off is not that God sovereignly distributes our assignments, but that we sovereignly make up our own assignments. Right? That we are, it's, it's what we call identity politics. Look at it everywhere, guys. Everything that's most important in this world is about who you are and who you're supposed to be and how can no one can tell you what you are supposed to be. Now, we look at the extremes in our world and we see that's pretty dangerous stuff. But listen, Christians do the same thing at times. We craft our identities around endless things, good things. Not necessarily bad things. Kids, athletics, academic acumen for our children, family's central, um, family's central recreational interests are sometimes what drive the bus. Uh, or we pit one ministry against another ministry, or one theological club against another theological club, or one sociopolitical ideal against another sociopolitical ideal. And all of these are simply, when all is said and done, are just you and I seeking to craft our own image. And here Paul, here John is making it very clear. Any identity, any worth in this ministry that I have been called to, and he says it very clearly, I am not the Messiah, but I've come to be ahead of him, which we'll dive into more in here in a second. He's simply saying, that's my identity. What God has assigned me is my identity. That's who I am. Friends, that can change everything about us. It really can if we will, allow, if we will then go, Lean before the um, the God of the universe, stand before him, bow before him, and allow him to shape and be, again, doesn't mean that it's not always easy, because it's not, but it's learning to trust that he has infinitely more wisdom than you do, and that I do. 
So the positive impact, though, on the other hand, is, is, is amazing, right? And we're going to talk about some of the fruits that, that John himself experienced here in just a second. But let's just talk about some things that are not necessarily in this text that, that might be helpful for us to consider if we let this principle become the centerpiece of our lives. That we no longer have to find our identity in anything except Jesus and him crucified. How about that one? Is that really the driving factor in our life, that Jesus is the one who holds my identity? We saw our brother go through baptism here this morning. In baptism, he is saying, I die to myself. I am buried in, in, from my sin, and I am now raised to new life. And what's that new life? Christ in him. That's what John would have us to understand about his response to these circumstances. Some other fruits might be in this, might be then, if that's the case, then there's freedom from endless pursuit of self-comparison. I mean, just spend more than five minutes on social media and you realize that's really what drives the bus, right? It's just like, ugh, always trying to make and compare and, and, and just play that rat race. But we're free from that when we are in Christ. We're, we're also peaceful in our decision-makings when we're faced with wisdom issues that are not necessarily plainly taught in Scripture. We can be peaceful in those decisions, and we can trust the Lord in those things. And you know what? Even if those decisions turn out not to be exactly the best decisions, the Lord is still sovereign and loving and kind enough to see us through them. Amen. That is one of the most freeing truths that I have, I have uh, I, I've learned over my years uh, of just being an adult, I guess is that I, if, if I can mess it up, I have surely tried to mess it up, and God has been kind enough to hold, well, hold things sure nonetheless. That we can make peaceful decisions, and we know that God's going to be with us. And then, and then, and then lastly, it kind of slows the pace, doesn't it? It allows us not to always be on the run, always having to run, 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 because I've got to make the right decision. I've got to get these things accomplished. I've got to get all this done. And we're all prone to this. I'm prone to this. A lot. A man and I talk about this frequently in our marriage. But let's, let's, let's just take a moment and let's, let's talk about the fruits then that we see actually develop in John's life. Because that's the second part of this. Is that There's this key gospel principle that God just sovereignly assigns our assignments. But then what kind of fruits should we be looking for in our lives if this is principle is starting to take shape inside of us? And John shows us this in verse 28. There's three principles, there's three fruits that I think are worth our reflection. First fruit is joyful perspective. The second fruit will be a, uh, a, a hopeful, a humble resolve. And then the last one will be a consuming passion. Now I want to talk a little bit about fruit in and of itself in our lives before we even talk about John's fruits. Because I think it's important to understand, how do you and I develop fruit? Because I, I believe understanding how the Bible describes how fruit is bared in our life versus what we tend to do to try to bear fruit in our lives is sometimes very different. Many of us have been taught, me included, that growth of fruit in my life is, is, is connected um, almost entirely to my own efforts. That doesn't mean our efforts don't matter, because they do. 
but almost all of us believe that, that, that okay, I, I believe in Jesus, I've walked the aisle, I've prayed the prayer, I've gotten dunked, but then all of a sudden from there, if I want to grow in Christ, well, I just got, I got to do an endless amount of like these little, these little this laundry lists of things I've got to do in order to grow fruit. And so then if you want to get closer to God, for example, then you must read more of your Bible, you must pray more, you must go to church more, you must exercise certain pietistic chore lists. But the problem with that idea is that the, the, ends beca- the, the means become the ends. That means, in other words, we are measuring ourselves by the activity, not actually by the fruit of the activity. And so then you measure yourself, and this is what I find a lot of times when I'm with men and we're in discipleship, is that they, de- they define themselves by how much they've read their Bible this week. Well, that's, there's some truth to that, but it's not, the, it's not that you haven't read your Bible this week that's the problem. It's that you're not, your heart's not been transformed is the problem, and you're not allowing the means to the ends to take their effect so that you actually produce the fruit in your life that God wants to produce in your life. The grace, the love, the, 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 the service, the sacrifice. And so when we, when we begin to start talking about fruit as, as things that we do in our lives, it's kind of like um, the picture of stapling fruit back to the tree. Are you familiar with this? Let's just think about horticulture for a second. We got orange trees. Of course, we all know that one of the best places for oranges to grow is where? Florida, California, right? Those are great states to that. And so the, the health and the goodness of, and the sweetness of the orange is probably going to be relative to the tree it grows on and the location that tree's in. Yes? All right. Same thing is true for Georgia and South Carolina peaches. It's going to be re- the, the, good, the best peaches are going to be from Georgia or South Carolina. By the way, misnomer, primarily South Carolina, right? And it's just the way it works. And it depends on where the tree is and where the tree and, and what tree it's coming from. Washington State apples, another example of this. But we tend to do this. And so then what we're saying is, is that the, the, the best fruit is going to be dependent on the tree in which it's grown on. Does that make sense? Are you following what I'm tracking here? But we tend to do the opposite when we think about spiritual fruit in our life. We tend to think of that, that, that really spiritual fruit is things that we staple onto our lives. So it's like you walking into an orchard and you see the, tr- the apple has fallen off the ground. And you go, well, that's not good. Let's go try to put the apple back on the tree. Well, it doesn't work, right? Even if you can find a way to see the apple stay on the branch, what's going to happen to that apple? It's still going to rot. It's still going to dissolve. It's still going to... It's still, going to, it's still going to end up being, it still won't grow. So fruit in our lives is something that is related to the, to, the, to the branch in which we are planted in, and the branch is related to the tree that it's planted in, and the tree is related to the, to the context that it's planted in. This is what John gets after in John chapter 15 when Jesus is talking to his disciples. We're going to talk about this in a few weeks, but just just go ahead and just read it now. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, will he removes and the prunes and every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean before because I, because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. The point is, if we're going to talk about John's fruits here, you've got to recognize that they're not things that John just started doing. John didn't just start being joyful. John didn't just start being humble. John didn't just start being passionate. These are fruits related to what? 
the principle, the gospel principle. God has sovereignly assigned my world, my life. And when I live in light of that truth, there are going to be fruits that will develop from that vine in my life. So let's talk about these fruits for a moment. Joyful perspective. Verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He has a joyful perspective because of the sovereign principle. Friends, how many of us need to wake up tomorrow morning and just simply say to ourselves, I am not the Messiah? In fact, let's just do it together right now. One, two, three. I am not the Messiah. You're not. I'm not. It's a joyful perspective that changes our hearts and our minds, that we are not the sole arbiters of our own ship, sole captains of our own ship. We are not. No. The significance of this is, 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 turns out to be earth-shattering, doesn't it? Because part of the main problem that we face as mankind, as humanity, is that we have a Messiah complex. Almost every one of our lives parts of our lives is affected by some level of what we would call a messiah complex. So we have a messiah complex about our careers. I've got to architect the right path. We have a messiah complex about our homes, as we mentioned earlier, and how we raise our children. We have a messiah complex about our, our social and cultural convictions. We have a messiah complex about the way that we, that we believe people should be educated. We have all kinds of messiah complexes that dominate our lives. But John says, I am not the Messiah. I am not in control of what God chooses to do with my ministry that he has called me to before Jesus comes. I am not the Messiah. John the Baptist found his joy in knowing that there was one true living God, and here we go, he was not him. That's part of John's conviction. He understood that his assignment was sovereignly distributed to him by God and it helped him to see that his assignment was about something or namely someone else bigger than himself. So mom, dad, right in the middle of where you are right now, that God has assigned that to you. All of us should be considering how this might relate to where we are. Because when we allow this truth to, to, to penetrate our hearts, and then we, this, this joyful perspective takes hold of our lives, it can lead us to some really much-needed repentance, can it not? Repentance are the areas where we tend to have a Messiah complex. Repentance over jealousy and covetousness over other circumstances versus my circumstances. Others better assignments than the ones that I have. Yes? Hey, dads, husbands. I know, as much as anyone, that tendency to covet the salaries and positions that other men have. And that fear of not being able to provide for your family. Or maybe provide what you feel like you want to provide for your family. And moms, wives, I, I, I know and I've seen in my life and as well as in many of my friends' lives that 
I know the tendency to covet the, the homes that our, our friends live in or the clothes that they wear or the talents that they have or the talents that their children have. And it's just this rat race that will just suck the life out of you. Children, teenagers. I always elevate that when I say teenagers because I want them to get, my, get their attention. Right? But I need you to lock in on this one too because this is for you. I've been a teenager, I was a youth pastor for 20 years, and I know with all my heart the tendency to, to covet, to be jealous over your friends' statuses in your world. I know the tendency to be covet their athletic ability and their experiences. I know the tendency to, to covet their looks or their reputation or even their families. When I was a kid, I grew up in a Pretty, my home was somewhat chaotic. We moved around a whole bunch. And it's one of the stabilizing factors in my life was my uncle, Barry, and Aunt Linda, and my cousin, Jason. They, to me, now, this might be an untimely reference. They were, to me, like the Cosbys back in the 80s. Cosbys were like the ultimate family, okay? Some people might have a problem with me saying that these days, but you're okay. Um, but my aunt and uncle were, like, stable, educated, they're happy, and they were just, they were just the kind of people, you, just, you, you go in their house, and you're like, man, this feels so good. And I never wanted to leave. Whenever we would go to Aunt, Aunt Barry and, um, I'm sorry, Aunt Linda and, and Uncle Barry's house, man, I just wanted to stay there. I, w- I would stay there for weeks. I literally had, like, a bed that I would go sleep in. I just loved this because I wanted something other than what I had. I wanted something other than what I had. There's always this tendency to say there's greener on the other side. But when we adopt a a robust vision of God's sovereign work in our lives, we are able to take all of the experiences, even the unwanted experiences and circumstances of our lives, and we're able to better steward the call that God has crafted in our lives and and not seek to be um, arbiter over someone else's call. So the big point is, We need to try to stop assuming responsibility for someone else's call that God hasn't given you and I and embrace the call that God has given to us right here and right now. Embrace the green pastures that the Lord has given you by his kindness. Even if those pastures don't always look as green as the ones that you're looking at across the way. So there's there's a joyful perspective that that develops in, in John's life. Second thing, there's a humble resolve, verse 29. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him. He rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. I love that. The groom's friend who stands by and listens for him. He rejoices greatly in the groom's voice, and his joy then is made complete. See, John the Baptist sees his role and his ministry's role as uh, the best man. He's the best man to the groom who is coming. And what does the best man do? Well, unfortunately, in our modern context, best men get off the hook pretty easy, right? All best men have to do in our modern context is throw a really awesome party and then make sure the groom gets to the altar on, Sunday, on Saturday afternoon. But, but really, in, back in the day, back in these first century here, the best man was much more than that. He was kind of the master of ceremonies. He was the forerunner before, and he was the one declaring this great union between the groom and the bride. That was his role. And there was a lot of work tied to this role. And so John is saying, I am the friend of the groom, I am the best man of the groom, and I rejoice greatly at his voice. He had a humble 
resolve. And what does that mean? In other words, there's not one ounce of wasted effort in John for doing his, fulfilling his role. Not one ounce of wasted effort in fulfilling his role. And he's going to die in a few weeks. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, he doesn't know that at this point. Maybe he would have changed his mind. I don't know if he knew that. But probably not. He understood his role. And he understood that, that this was a humble, he embraced a humble resolve to say, I am his best man and I'm going to work tirelessly for him. Do you see Jesus as your best man? I mean, you see yourself as Jesus' best man. That you want to work tirelessly for the kingdom. No matter if, that king, if your efforts are grand or small. It helps us to receive our stewardship with joy, doesn't it? And not feel the responsibility to, to, to take responsibility for things that we're not given. Again, let's just use the context of the, the examples we've been using, vocational stewardship. I mean, again, this is, there's no wasted job. I mean, part, aside from any job that is seeking to rob God of his glory or is deemed evil by scripture, of course, we would say those things are, those things are wasted jobs. But in general, there is no wasted job in the world. And sometimes it's hard to see the cumulative value of our jobs and our circumstances in, in our careers, but... But God allows us these opportunities so that he can show us his glory, even if we never see the purpose of it right in the middle of it. Home stewardship. Like John understood, all these things are applicable to this, right? Because there's no wasted family. Whether you're living on in, in, in the burbs and in, in, in a... In a multi-billion dollar home or if you're living in a more inner city context or wherever you may be or in a rural context there is no wasted family moments there's no wasted family um, uh, uh, journeys that God has is shaping for his people we come in all shapes and sizes do we not and God calls us to those things whether you have no children or you have 10 children but the message we hear today is kind of different when it comes to the family, right? If my family doesn't have the same privileges and opportunities as other families, then mine is lesser value. But is that true? The Bible says an entirely different message about the family. The key is whether or not the moments in our journeys are given to exalt Christ. Is that the aim? That's the things that we want to remind ourselves of as we go through this journey social stewardship there's no wasted neighborhood you live in there's no it's no, whether you are living in a more poor or richer neighborhood it doesn't matter the question becomes is do our neighbors see our love for them do our neighbors see our love for the things of god do our neighbors see our love for their soul do our neighbors see our love for their flourishing these are all things the questions of uh, that they're that informed by that principle of god's sovereign appointment of our assignments Amen. these are the things that drive the heart of someone who has that at the heart of their that humble resolve of being a good neighbor being a faithful mom and dad being a faithful church member 
to this church stewardship of serving and giving. And sometimes we don't serve in places that we like, do we? Sometimes you just got to do what needs to be done. And I see this all the time in the church. And we're thankfully growing as a church where we can start to see people flourish and to be able to pursue the ministry that God is calling them to. But then for many years in this church, for the first four or five years of our church, people just had to do what needed to be done. You know why? Because it's not glorious, but it needed to be done. And I'm thankful for them. But we serve not from necessarily what we get out of it, but because at the end of the day, it just reflects the fact that we trust in God's sovereign appointment. We give in the same manner. Sometimes we don't give. It's been my impression, as I've counseled many people over the years about giving and tithing in the church, we don't give sometimes because we don't believe that the little that we have to give actually makes a difference. And that's a really faulty attitude when you start thinking about the, the woman who gave her last cent. But then there's the opposite that comes, happens at times too, right? That we don't give because we feel like we carry too much of the burden, too much of the responsibility, and other people need to help along with us. Yet God has sovereignly given you your responsibilities as well. And God tells all of us to do this. See, at the end, before we move on to this last point, at the end, it is God has given you your assignment Fulfill it with humble resolve, even if you don't always feel it. Why? Because God has graciously and kindly included you and I in his plans. And he didn't have to do that. And this last point, this last fruit that comes out of his life, and it's just right there, it's a very simple phrase there in verse 30. He must increase. And I must decrease. It's like the bookend, right? It's the bookend. This is where it all comes to. This is, where the, this, is, this is the key fruit that develops in our lives when we understand God's sovereign assignments of our life. He, it is, it is that he, is, he must increase and I must decrease. See, your plans and my plans are just that. Your plans and my plans. But God's plans, God's ways are higher than our ways, and therefore we must be willing to submit our ways to his I mean, consider James who says, don't pray like this. Don't pray as if tomorrow's a, as if tomorrow's going to happen, but pray if God wills. In other words, live a life that has kind of the kind of open-handedness to it, that you're willing to go wherever the Lord leads you and trust him along the way. When, we, when you and I are able to pray like this, we are well on our way to living lives that seek to increase the glory of God in the world, regardless of how we have how large of a stewardship or a small stewardship that God has given us. That's life-changing. So now as we finish up this morning, and we begin to kind of let these truths begin to kind of bury themselves in our hearts and minds, and we come to the table, I want you to come to the table with a couple of thoughts, a couple of ideas. Number one, your assignment my assignment in this life is temporary. You need to come to the table with that in your mind this morning. Your assignment and my assignment this morning is temporary. But number two, be reminded as you come to the table, as God's people, your assignment as his people is eternal. Your, your, your temporariness here does not diminish your eternal assignment with God as his people. 
And then three, the glories of this world will fade, but the glory of Jesus will radiate for eternity. That's what it means that he must increase and we must decrease. God, this morning, may we leave here today seeking to radiate your glory with that purpose to understand that our assignments, though temporary, fade pale in comparison to the glory that is in Jesus and that eternal assignment that we have been given by God's grace, by your grace, God, to be your people. We love you, God. It's in Christ's name. Amen.